And this is actually a really important line because your right to believe is absolute. It's probably the only absolute right you have under our constitution. But your right to act on that belief is not. Um, so I actually opened the book with several stories about drivers letting Jesus take the wheel, right? Now, the, they <laughs> right. are free to believe that their personal savior is a backseat driver and that he is stepping in and grabbing the wheel, fine. But if they actually act on that, the civil law can also step in and say no. Hi, I'm Chloe Gio, and you're listening to On God's Campus, Voices from the Queer Underground a podcast about white Christian supremacy and being queer on the most conservative campuses in the country. Think of me as your guide and translator as we explore the carefully constructed subculture of religious education. Joining me are co-hosts Paul Carlos Southwick, our resident legal expert and historian, and Aaron Green, our biblical scholar. What you will find here is a roadmap to change from the underbelly of the church's best kept secrets. All right, we've got an amazing guest today, Andrew Seidel. Uh, thanks for being with us, Andrew. And Andrew is Vice President of Strategic Communications for Americans United for Separation of Church and State. He's also an attorney, like me, uh, who has defended the First Amendment for more than a decade and is the author of two books, The Founding Myth, Why Christian Nationalism is Un-American, and American Crusade, How the Supreme Court is Weaponizing Religious Freedom, uh, which just came out last year, and which he kindly signed for me at the Summit for <laughs> Religious Freedom in April, uh, where we were all there in DC this past April. So uh, thanks so much for being here, Andrew. And Aaron's got a little bit more on you. Andrew is a senior correspondent at Religion Dispatches, and he organized and contributed to the groundbreaking report Christian Nationalism at the January 6, 2021 Insurrection, which was published by the Baptist Joint Committee and the Freedom From Religion Foundation. Andrew graduated from Tulane University and Tulane University Law School. And Andrew was also an environmental lawyer and Grand Canyon tour guide, which I have questions <laughs> about. Oh, we could talk about that for a long time. In a previous <laughs> life, okay. Welcome to On God's Campus, Andrew. We're so excited to have you here. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for hosting me. Hey, well, I'll just kind of jump right out to it. Um, we have uh, spent some time in your latest book, American Crusade. Um, so just kind of from the outset, could you tell our listeners um, why you wrote American Crusade and how it might be relevant to some of the um, religious liberty, civil rights, and education battles that we see erupting throughout the country? Absolutely. So to, to all the Christian nationalists out there in America, we're not coming for your rights. We're coming for your privilege. Uh, that's uh -huh. how, I, that's nice. how I dedicated American Crusade. <laughs> um, that's a great dedication. We love Court to is, see it. I <laughs> would love to see it. Um, and the subtitle is How the Supreme Court is Weaponizing Religious Freedom. And I, I, this is something I really wanted to wake the country up to. There's, there is a crusade to weaponize religious freedom. The title kind of says it all, you know. Thanks to the packed, captured Supreme Court, religious freedom has really become a tool, a weapon of Christian privilege, of Christian supremacy. Re religious freedom is meant to protect everybody who is listening to this podcast, whether you are a blasphemous, godless heathen, 
Uh, atheist. Yikes! Like yikes! <laughs> it's, getting, it's getting hot in here. That just to be clear, that's me, right? Uh, or, or you know, or, it's a little or, bit us too. <laughs> Maybe just or whether you're at church three times a week, you know, religious freedom includes the right to worship any God, every God or reject every God. And in other words, it's, it's long been the shield, right? It's a it's a hallowed protection against government overreach. It's the minority's protection against the tyranny of the majority. And it's a right that is guaranteed by a strong separation of church and state, but not anymore. Not anymore. And there, there is a well-funded, powerful network of Christian nationalist organizations and judges. Uh, this is a billion-dollar shadow network that has been working to turn that protection of religious freedom enjoyed by all into a weapon of supremacy and privilege for the few. I mean, they really are waging a crusade to weaponize religious freedom. And I, I think it's important to recognize that this is a war of conquest. It's not of land. But the Crusaders are, they're looking to conquer the Constitution and remake it in their image. I remember, uh, you know, learning a lot about Crusaders and, you know, you think of the shield <laughs> and the armor and the sword. Mm -hmm. um, what do American Crusaders uh, nowadays, what do they look like? How do we spot them? Uh, if you saw any of the footage from January 6th, you saw the, the foot soldiers so okay. you know, uh, <laughs> yep. in this crusade. Yep. A little bit of a ragtag band in some ways. Quite impressive. Band. Quite impressive, yes. Uh, but they also have, I mean, it, it, the Christian Nationalists organization in this country that is really backing this crusade, it, it's a top-down organization. Um, and so, so you have, you have these, these huge sources of funding, um, these sort of prime movers on the other side, people like Leonard Leo, who is kind of universally recognized as the guy who orchestrated the hostile takeover of our courts. Um, and then you have these, these Christian nationalist organizations, um, these groups that all have kind of the similar names, these legal groups that make up the billion dollar shadow network, like Alliance Defending Freedom and the American Center for Law and Justice and the Beckett Fund for Religious Liberty and Liberty Council and First Liberty Institute. I mean, really like this Orwellian word salad, right? Um, and, and, <laughs> right. And, and they're the ones who are filing lawsuit after lawsuit. They're stoking these fears of status loss. Um, they're, they're setting the cases up so that their, their friends on the Supreme Court can come. And we, we and come across them all the time in the work yep. that we do. Yeah. And oh, yeah. I'll, from my side of things, I, when I think of American Crusader like that, I think suit and tie, yep. Ivy degree pedigree, you know, Ivy degree school, and people who are wicked smart and have lots of money. Um, yeah. Very different than the insurrectionist ragtag crew yeah. and probably a lot more dangerous. I don't know. What do you think? I do. No, absolutely agree. Um, and the, the, I think the commonalities are the anti-democracy bent of both. Um, you know, I mean, I do think that the, the billionaire like Leonard Leo, um, who worked at Brooks Brothers, right, is like, you know, really into his fashionable suits more so than for me. real. Is that is that a fact? <laughs> yeah, yeah. He, yeah he's like very <laughs> much into the sartorial. He is um, yeah, he is a uh, not a man to shy away from a very expensive suit. And, you know, he got a one point <laughs> six billion dollar donation last summer for his. anti-democracy. <laughs> wow. I uh, used to work at yeah. Brooks Brothers as well. No, you didn't. I did in a previous life before I was a cool uh, 
religious activists helping queer and trans students uh, at religious colleges, but yes, in a Did you know life. Leonard Leo? Did, did you work with him? <laughs> I did not, unfortunately, oh, have okay. that privilege. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, you know, it's, it's crazy, too, because I also think that we, we can say maybe not just suits, but also I think now it's it's fair to say that we're, we're talking about some of these crusaders in robes, too. You know, I mean, we're, we're, these groups are these groups and these high-level crusaders are filing a lawsuit after lawsuit, and but they're setting them up for the justices on the Supreme Court to come knock them down, right? And it begins, honestly, to look a lot like, to use the C word that was popular a while back, it begins to look like collusion. And especially when we find out that these same groups and these same donors are whining and dining justices on private super yachts and private jets and on island hopping vacations, none of which are disclosed. You know, the other C word for that is corruption. Absolutely. And I think we're learning more and more, it seems like, each week, some kind of new article is coming out exposing um, these gifts and undisclosed potential conflicts and marital relationships. Um, I think you described the American Crusaders as sort of an incestuous group. Ooh, um, yeah. Yeah. And that, that seems to be coming to light more and more. Do you think it's going to have an effect on how the American public sees the court? Or are they just going to be able to kind of bat it away? I mean, to me, that is one of the big questions um, because I come back to, and I talk about this at the end of American Crusade quite a bit, the Supreme Court is the central roadblock, the central problem that we as a nation face right now. I mean, whatever progressive issue you care about, whether it is LGBTQ rights or abortion rights or solving the climate crisis, you know, having clean water and and, uh, clean air to drink and breathe, um, whether you care about workers' rights or racial justice, any of those issues, the Supreme Court is the major roadblock that stands in the way of progress on those. Um, And we, I mean, we saw it time and time again this term and it also stands i think athwart democracy so the question that i have is we know this court has been packed we know this court has been captured already the question that i have is what are we going to do about it and we have all these great policy solutions like hey you know what the supreme court overturned roe versus wade we'll pass the women's health protection act and that will fix a lot of the problems that underlied roe uh, in the first place, and it'll it'll basically undo the Dobbs decision. That's great. What happens when the Women's Health Protection Act gets to the Supreme Court in a year or two? Right. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I think we know what yeah. would likely happen to it. Does any like I like? Does anybody have any doubt about that? I yeah. Right. It, it doesn't. The, the facts in the law don't matter. They did before Dobbs, and you know uh, now I think if if you don't, uh, if you really think that they're going to defend something like that now, I think you are just you know hoping against okay. hope um, and not really with your eyes open. You um, are. And, you know, there was, there was a former employee of Leonard Leo's who described his mission like this. He's, this is what he said about Leo's mission. Quote, he figured out 20 years ago that conservatives had lost the culture war. Abortion, gay rights, contraception, conservatives didn't have a chance if public opinion prevailed. So they needed to stack the courts. Right. And, and that's what they did. And I mean, just just notice the anti-democratic admission. <laughs> wow. The goal in like if we don't stack the courts, you guys, the majority is going to rule. Democracy is going to work. What are we going to do? Well, we'll spend five hundred and fifty million dollars packing the court. 
from 2014 to 2020. And you, you don't spend that kind of money to get an impartial court. You, they no. bought a court. They bought a court. They bought a court. Oh, and that that's scary for, for scary. all of us, you know, Super and scary. like you said, for anyone in any kind of justice movement, it seems like we are we are just going to be heading back in time for a bit. Um, which leads me into kind of a more specific question for you. Uh, one of the chapters in your book, Andrew, chapter 15, um, an American crusade is religious freedom and segregation academies. And so this is a chapter that's close to our hearts because at reap, um, we focus on religiously affiliated educational institutions. And right now there's a lot of fights over queer, trans, and non-binary rights within education, both public, private, and religious. Um, but these are rights, these are fights that we have seen before and um, are getting raised in new ways as well with the anti-CRT movement and the book bans. And so, um, you know, a lot of people don't know that there is a racist history to the school choice movement to private religious schools, to religious exemptions to civil rights laws, and, and you talk a lot about that. Um, so what I want to ask you now is, why is it important for people to know about this racist history, even if the schools and organizations that are part of this are no longer explicitly racist in all the ways that they used to be? You know, nobody's trying to keep black kids out of schools directly and explicitly in the way that they used to. So why is it still important for us to know this this history now? I mean, I, I actually think it's, it's crucial um, that people understand that the modern push for vouchers and for school choice wasn't born of this pure religious freedom question, right? Which is like, that, that's how it is enshrined in most people's brains and that's just wrong. It was, it was born of racism. And then later it was sort of cloaked in this religious freedom rhetoric and shell only later on. I mean, to me, that is, that is absolutely crucial. I, th I think it's very hard to shake off the taint of racism. And I think it should be. Um, I don't know that time simply passing is enough to do that. And it's especially important now when we are seeing the Supreme Court utterly eviscerate so many of the things that have moved this country away from desegregation and institutionalized racism, like gutting the Voting Rights Act in case after case, like, okay, they didn't kill it stone dead this particular term, but they are, I mean, they, they, they put it on life support in th several previous decisions, Shelby County, Brnovich, et cetera, and then left it to die another day this term, right? Um, they overturned a, a affirmative action in higher education, right? Race, con race conscious admissions. Right. Um, it's, yeah, more, I mean, it's like an incrementalism, but it feels like an accelerated incrementalism on their side. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, I think the biggest one is actually the 303 creative case, which mm. you know, to my mind, this drives a church bus through our public accommodation laws, which arguably did perhaps the most to move this country away from desegregate, excuse me, towards desegregation away from segregation, right? In places of public accommodation, certainly. But I mean, really, uh, Sotomayor has written about this quite a bit, um, talked about the, the importance of that. But if you want, I think, to me, the seminal writing 
uh, on that is Martin Luther King's letter from the Birmingham jail, um, which I highly recommend people reread if they have not, um, and, and pay particular attention to the, um, passage where he talks about his watching his daughter, watching the clouds of mental inferiority form in his daughter's mental sky. Um, when he tells her that the commercial that she just saw for fun town, um, doesn't let colored kids in. That's how he, he phrased it. Um, and I mean, it, it, those laws were one of the things that moved us towards equal citizenship. Um, and they were very, very successful at, on that front. And but also controversial, right? I mean, we kind of take them for granted now, but at the time there was massive resistance, right? There was. There was, and the Supreme including Court from the church. stood up to it back yes. then, including from the church. Well, I mean, one of some of the first arguments that were made against it were free speech and religious freedom. And the oh, court actually, that sounds familiar. Yeah, the court laughed <laughs> those off in a footnote uh, back in the 60s, but now this court, this captured court, is deciding cases on that basis. Um, so the, to, to answer your, your question, I think the reason it's so crucial that we understand the origins of modern school choice and vouchers is because we are very quickly moving back to those origins in other areas. And I do not think we should expect any different when it comes to private schools, especially private religious schools. want to pivot to talking more about faith-based things. Um, th this is Andrew. I know you, you might not know a lot about me, but I'm, I'm the Bible scholar of us, of the group here. <laughs> we have a resident biblical scholar. <laughs> yes, Love it's it. true. Um, but I'm the cool kind, so don't gotcha. worry. <laughs> yeah. um, but I, so I don't have an expertise in like the law and things like that, obviously, like you and Paul do. But can you help kind of explain the context or the proper context for what religious freedom in America should look like for those of us who may not oh, yeah. understand fully how that should be manifested in our society? It's a great question. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that is, is such an important question. And I, it's one that I try to answer throughout American Crusade, because I think the answer is really simple. I, I do not think the questions that these cases were seeing decided at the Supreme Court over the last 10 years, the religious freedom questions that are presented, are, are that hard to answer at all. Um, in fact, I think when religion and the law collide, most of the time, the, the way forward is pretty basic. Um, that 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 the it's pretty easy to solve unless of course there's some ulterior motive behind the cases and opinions which you know <laughs> I kind of argue there might be um, <laughs> now this is, I I think you can do this by drawing three lines and and I'll, I'll preface this by saying that one of the things I try to do in American Crusade um, is not hide behind legalese or civil procedure or judicial philosophies or levels of scrutiny or precedence. I think that oftentimes legal writers really love to hide behind those in the guise of appearing to have this superior knowledge. Um, I think it's much better to shed all of that nonsense, to get back to basics, to avoid the BS. Um, Absolutely. And I think, yes. And I think when you cut through all of that prattle and piffle, the, the simple truth that these are easy questions is presented. And all you have to do is draw these three basic lines. Now, 
in the spirit of not using legalese, I creatively refer to these lines in the book as line number one, line number two, and line number three. Okay. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Ah. Easy, I, I easy know. to follow. Yes. I know. Try to keep up, everybody. Okay? <laughs> um, so f- the first line that we draw is we distinguish between action and belief. And this is actually a really important line because your right to believe is absolute. It's probably the only absolute right you have under our Constitution but your right to act on that belief is not. Um, so I actually opened the book with several stories about drivers letting Jesus take the wheel, right? Now, the, they <laughs> right. are free to believe that their personal savior is a backseat driver and that he is stepping in and grabbing the wheel, fine. But if they actually act on that, the civil law can also step in and say no, right? It can fine them, it can take away their license, it can maybe even send them to prison, right? The, the belief is unlimited but the action is limited. And so that brings you to the second line, which is, okay, then if the government can step in and say no, when is it permissible for the government to do so? And the answer here is also pretty simple too, and it's where the rights of other people begin. Okay, now it may be in some cases that the government can step in sooner, but it absolutely can step in where the rights of other people begin. So your right to, you, everybody's heard this, your right to swing your fist ends at the other person's nose. Well, your right to swing your religion ends where the rights of other people begin. But right, so if you way, have a religious belief, uh, mm-hmm. whether it's dangerous to others or not, you can have that belief and no one can, can punish you for it. But mm-hmm. if your belief is not dangerous, if it's benign, then you know it's probably gonna be tolerated. But if it's dangerous or pernicious, that's where the state can can step in. Is that? Yeah, yeah. Relig- Here's another way to think of it. Religion is not a license to harm others or infringe their rights in any way. Um, uh, yes, and it's it's a pretty basic. I mean, you know, the the uh, Crystal as a Bible scholar, the the Abraham Isaac example is like reasonably helpful here too, and it's actually one that both the Supreme Court and Thomas Jefferson have used to explain this point before, right? Abraham can believe that God is telling him that he has to kill his son. But if he tries to do that, or if he succeeds in doing that, the government can step in and say, you do not get to kill your child because you think you're right. <laughs> right. That, 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 that's the kind of the ultimate violation of somebody else's. Well, and it seems like it seems absurd to us sitting here talking. But when I've read your book and some of the things I know about, um, it's not too absurd in some communities. Yeah. They are killing their children by denying them medical care and things yeah. like that. All kinds yeah. of things, yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, there, there, are, there are graveyards in Idaho just, just full of children who died because they didn't get things like antibiotics and insulin. Um, another, so what's, line, what's line number three? Line number three, I think, is also easy too. Um, it is the line between state and church. Right. Our, our government has no religion to exercise and government officials can't abuse government power and resources to promote their personal religion, which is a way that we don't often talk about church state separation, but is a way that I think we should. Right? These are people who are occupying a temporary office and when they are using the powers and privileges of that office to promote or impose their personal religion on others, it's just a pure abuse of power. Um, and, and so I think when you have those three basic lines, the questions posed in religious freedom cases really do become easy to answer. Um, and that's one of the things I try to do throughout American Crusade is go back and look at these cases over the last 10 years and apply those lines and say, yeah, see, pretty basic. 
So I, I love all that and I love the explanation. I think it's simple to understand and it's reasonable, right? Um, I, I'm curious though, because the church population makes up such a big population of America, mm-hmm. especially the progressive churches, um, how do you feel or in what ways do you feel that progressive churches are helping the case for the separation of church and state, but also how are they harming it currently? Uh, I think that's a really good question. Um, and it's one of the reasons I love working in Americans United. So Americans United for separation of church and state. Um, it's a, we're a nonpartisan, not-for-profit educational and advocacy organization. And the thing that I really love is that we bring together people of all religions and of none to protect the right of everybody to believe as they want, but also to stop anyone from using their beliefs to harm others. Um, and AU's been doing this for nearly 75 years. And um, one of the things I love about it is getting to work across all kinds of different divides and aisles um, with people who may not believe as may not be the blasphemous, godless, heathen that I, like myself that I mentioned at the beginning, um, but are working to build a better America by keeping church and state separate. Um, my friend Chrissy Stroop um, put this very nicely. She said that shared values matter more than shared beliefs. Mm. And yeah, she said that, and I had the exact same reaction, and it has just. <laughs> lodged in my brain and I, I you know I use it all the time now and I would I would rather have a drink and a chat and um, you know split some guacamole with a group of Christians who value anti-racism and social justice than with a group of anti-equality atheists but right, and there's, right. Yeah. right yeah there's not many of those but they exist and they're very loud you know, the, <laughs> the, the capper for me though is that shared values, matter far more when we as a nation face an existential threat like white Christian nationalism. Um, so, I mean, we, we are at a point where like we have to be reaching in and find across every divide that we can and finding those allies where they are. Um, and, you know, the report that you mentioned at the beginning, uh, or uh, Paul, maybe it was you, I don't remember who did that part of the intro, that I, that I worked on about the role that Christian nationalism played in the January 6th insurrection, you know, that was basically Amanda Tyler and myself. That was the two of us working side by side. And Amanda Tyler, um, you know, she is a member of the clergy. She works for the Baptist Joint Committee for Religious Liberty. Um, but she is also a very, uh, now I would say, dear friend. And we've done a lot of work together on this front. And uh, historically, Baptists have been very good on church-state separation. Um, they split as a sect and the, the one of the groups is maybe not as good these days. Um, but, you know, uh, Amanda and her group do some really phenomenal work and they also run something called Christians Against Christian Nationalism, which I think is, um, you know, it, there's a line in the Bible about uh, getting one's own house in order, maybe something about removing the log from your own eye. I really think that if we're going to beat back this anti-democratic movement, white Christian nationalism in the United States, it's going to require American Christians um, doing a lot of that work. I I agree. And, um, you know, 
I, I grew up in a fundamentalist Christian home, so did. Uh, but we both came from like, you know, that sort of view of religion. But, you know, I know religions come in many varieties and flavors. There's some that are sweet, some are more bitter, some are poisonous. Um, so, yeah. you know, it seems to me like religious fundamentalism of whatever religion or denomination is what threatens human rights and democracy in a way that non-fundamentalist religion does not. So should should the law or should society treat fundamentalism sort of a different category from the rest of religion or or how should how should we account for that? Gosh, the law has such a hard time figuring out what religion is. I'm trying to imagine the law trying to separate religion from religious fundamentalism or religious extremism um and the the issue that the judges would have with that and how difficult that would be for them um it's an interesting thought though paul i mean it really is you know i mean here's i'm just this is not quite an, this is not an answer but i'm going to tell you what my dream is my dream is to live in a country where the separation of church and state is valued by everyone where we all from believers to the most extreme believers to non-believers understand that true religious freedom can only exist with a secular government, that we get freedom of religion only when we have a government that is free from religion, right? Like I want to live in a country <laughs> where my nonprofit <laughs> Americans United for separation of church and state is unnecessary. <laughs> I'm trying to put myself out of a job where, where reap is unnecessary. You know, I want a country where I can get together right. with people who believe vastly disparate things from me uh, in terms of, you know, and have, and have these deep fascinating conversations about God and the nature of the universe and why we're all here and then disagree about all those things. Um, you know, but right now at this, at this moment, we, we are just fighting a movement that would, I think, if given the power, make those conversations impossible, that would privilege conservative, white, heterosexual Christian men above everyone else, that would create an America with two classes, the, the privileged white conservative Christian men and everybody else, right? That Where the, where the law would uh, protect that in-group, that privileged class, but not bind them. And where the law would bind everybody else, but not protect them. That's what we're moving towards. And, you know, our, I, I do believe that our country is on fire right now. Our democracy isn't slipping away. It's being stolen. The republic is being strangled. And, and those of us who share values like equality and justice and truth and fairness must come together to stop the arsonist, the thief, the murderer. And, and that means fighting Christian nationalism. And, and that means, I think above all, fighting for an America where the separation of church and state is not just absolute, but valued. I worry though that, so like that view of uh, religious pluralism, and you know, I think that would lead to a lot of you know, peace in our country, a lot more peace than we're currently experiencing. But isn't that fundamentally um, incompatible with religious fundamentalism? You know, like when I, how I was raised is this is a Christian nation. And if you believe otherwise, Andrew, you are a godless pagan heathen leading us astray and leading our country to its demise. Mm -hmm. So is there a place for fundamentalists in 
a pluralistic society or are they just do we treat them as outcasts essentially yeah i mean that you're now we're into popper's paradox of tolerance i think which is super fun but it is i mean it is i think of certainly a valid question to ask um and and that's one of the things that i was trying to get at at the end there where where we all understand that the separation of church and state is what protects our ability to think and believe as we want first and foremost. And you're right that there are going to be some belief systems where that are incompatible with that, that are no, the only structure and belief structure that can exist is mine. And it has to be, it has to take primacy over everything else. Um, and then you are fully into the the question of toleration and the, the, uh, the popper's toler- paradox of toleration. Um, and at what point can a society that's built on tolerance, or what point must it stop tolerating those beliefs? It's a really, really thorny question in philosophy. And I don't, I don't certainly haven't solved it. Well, the court had answered this question back in the 70s and 80s when it came, to a certain extent, answered this question in the context of racism and basically mm-hmm. said, yeah. you know, if you have religious, re- religion-based racist beliefs that are put into racist practices that harm black folks, um, then those are not things that we are going to protect under the Constitution. And so... In, you know, in this podcast, um, we talk a lot about Bob Jones University versus the United mm-hmm. States. I know you talk about that in your book as well, in American Crusade and some of the decisions there. So what, uh, and, and just for our listeners who maybe didn't hear prior episodes in Bob Jones, the court sided with equality for, for black Americans um, against religious liberty justifications for the government support of racist religious educational institutions. And so what what the current court has done is basically said, we're not extending that to any other uh, minority groups. We're not extending that to women, to queer folks, to trans folks. Um, but I'm wondering, is race on the table again? So how do you think the Bob Jones University case would be decided today, now that crusaders, as you call them, have taken over the Supreme Court? Yeah, I mean, that's a really good question. Um, and I think the 303 creative opinion, which came down on June 30th, um, offers some insight into that answer. Um, first, I do want to just offer a, ref- a small refinement on your your question, Paul, because people yeah, are do. free to be, people are still free to be racists in this country that they want right they can't do they can't there's a lot of things they can't do like use their business or their limited liability company or their place of public accommodation to to then harm other folks with their racist beliefs at least for now or to get Um, government money to to further those practices yeah exactly yeah right um so yeah, I mean, Bob Jones was a racist. You know, he said, I think he said, uh, the quote is, if you are against segregation and against racial separation, then you are against God. Um, it really did not like infidels uh, or satanic propagandists, um, you know, and really believed that, I this is the quote, God Almighty turned the colored people in the South into wonderful Christian people, right? Basically like racism was a good thing because it made Christians basically. Um, 
you know, and he, I think he was, I, I, I'd be interested. Stand up character. Stand up Stand up character, like a forerunner Ooh, for today's model. Like mega preachers. Model <laughs> citizen. <laughs> um, yeah, and he really brought that ethos and his religion into Bob Jones University. Um, I mean, you know, the, the, every school activity in class started and ended with prayer. There was daily church for students that was mandatory. There was, of course, religion classes. Um, and as part of that biblically literal Christianity in his mind, that meant admitting only white people into Bob Jones University. And the reason I'm laying all that out is because I think he made a good case of linking his racism to his religion. I think they were, they, they were very, very clear about that throughout the case. Um, it wasn't just sort of a Southern cultural value. It was exactly. something that they directly tied to how they interpreted the Bible. Exactly. And, you know, they, they, they sent out this fundraising letter when the IRS first started saying, hey, you might lose your tax exemption because of this. Um, and they, you know, the whole cause of Christ is at stake in this matter. Um, you know, fear mongering and fundraising off of, off of it, which is, you know, that, that's, that's the way of the, the, the billion dollar shadow network that I mentioned earlier. They, they've got deep roots here. Um, and so, I mean, for this court, my guess is today um, that you could point that you can point to the 303 creative case, which the court just decided, and that that provides sufficient precedent um, to overturn Bob Jones. Um, oh, I suspect. So scary. I suspect we. I would suspect we will see. I'm almost. I, I know. In fact, I know we will see some lawyers arguing that at some point in the next few years. Um, I think one, one thing people don't realize is that after the Masterpiece Cake Shop case, which was ADF's first challenge, the Alliance Defending Freedom, which is one of those groups I mentioned, their first challenge to a public accommodation law that reached the Supreme Court, which was on religious freedom and free speech grounds, right? They basically said, we do not have to serve LGBTQ people, even though the state civil rights law says so, because of free speech and because of religious freedom. And in that case, the court didn't decide that question. Um, they, they basically punted, even though they decided against the couple, but in a punt. Um, but we still saw a wave of discrimination in Colorado against these marginalized communities after that, after that case came down, even though it didn't give the bigots what they wanted. Um, and there's a study that I go over in the book um, that, that looked at these numbers, but there's also a case study where um, you know, there was this this wedding venue in Mississippi that said right after the case um, uh, denied allowing an interracial couple to marry there um, and said, we don't our, our biblical. I don't remember the exact quote, but something like our biblical worldview doesn't allow us to do um, interracial marriages. That was the, that was at least the, the thrust of what they were saying. Um, now, they, they backtracked. But if you go. If you go listen to the oral arguments in both the Masterpiece Cake Shop case and in the 303 Creative Decision, um, one of the constant questions that the justices and, and asked and that the lawyers tried to answer was, if we allow discrimination against this group, 
against LGBTQ people, what's to prevent it from being used against other groups that are supposed to be these protected classes? And nobody, nobody could answer that question. It basically came down to saying uh, race is different. Um, Which is sort of a non-answer. It's a non-answer. Yeah. Um, and, and Gorsuch does the same thing in, his, in this latest opinion. He makes basically no attempt to distinguish discrimination against LGBTQ people from racial discrimination, other than to say Sotomayor's analogy to the separate but equal is, quote, pure fiction. That's, that's basically it. Um, but it is impossible to draw a logical or consistent line between discrimination against one protected class, race, and another, sexual orientation, because once religiously motivated discrimination is permitted, you've already drawn the line in the wrong place, right? Instead of drawing the line between night and day, the crusaders are drawing the line between these shades of benighted bigotry is how I put it in the book. Um, And we are going to see racial discrimination be argued um, in the wake of this case. Um, I would not be surprised if it ties to to money and to public education too. I mean, especially with the fall of affirmative action. Right. Um, you know, it, it certainly is. Um, and I pulled up the quote from the, the one, that wedding venue that turned away the interracial couples. Uh, we don't do gay weddings or mixed race because of our Christian race. I mean, our Christian belief. That is what they, they said at the time. <laughs> So there you go. Wow. <laughs> Interesting it. slip there. Yeah, it was. <laughs> yeah. Oh, boy. Well, I, I have a, a law question, though. Cause oh, yeah. Okay. I'm, okay. So how can the court interpret that way? Like, if, if they can't answer that slippery slope question, then how can they make a decision that was so firm on, you know, the masterpiece cake shop decision or what you know give any given case or whatever like if they're not able to answer that like slippery slope thing how can they make decisions based on that well one thing that i looked for when the opinion came down and i actually had i wrote an op-ed well i I wrote an op-ed after the the oral argument in april and then i held it till we got the opinion and the only thing i had to change um, in that op-ed um, was I had to delete a paragraph because I predicted that the the majority was going to try very hard to distinguish race um, from the other kinds of discrimination. And I even thought, I even predicted that Amy Coney Barrett was going to write a concurring opinion that did that. Um, I was wrong about that and had to delete that line. The court did not try to do anything to distinguish race. It went out of its way to avoid any discussion of it at all, um, which suggests to me that they could not do it. Um, And they are opening this Pandora's box and hoping to figure out a way to deal with it when it actually comes up in a case. Um, That, now that may be too broad a reading and I will say that I've not seen anybody else um, say something along those lines. So that's just Andrew talking out of his, you know, mouth right now. Um, but I, it is, it is noticeable that they avoided, that the majority avoided any discussion of race, um, and and really seemed to go out of their way to avoid that, um, haunting really. 
I think that is a good observation of what the court didn't say and, and what that might mean, um, because when you leave something unsaid, you're essentially leaving room for people to act in that area. So, yeah. right. um, Paul, do you know what else? The, you know what else the court didn't say? What, what else? The court did not, it, despite the fact that this was an LGBTQ case and about theoretically gay marriage, the court did not cite Obergefell or mention ah. that marriage equality is the law of the land. Um, right, because essentially which, there's a fundamental right that is being burdened <laughs> by the 303 decision and they don't talk about it. Yes, which I think is also like very alarming. Ugh. I didn't even um, think about that. Yeah, yeah. So, well, think. I know that there's lots of doom and gloom, um, <laughs> but yes. we are also in the fighting backstage, and we we represent you know a lot of young people who are in these religious communities where their elders are are basically fighting for Christian nationalism, but they are often um, rebelling against their elders, and so. We uh, reserve a time in each of episode of our podcast to do a question from um, a student question. Oh, yes. And, I um, love this. Yeah. And we'll Honoring have this... the rebellion. I, this, I'm so excited about this. That's right. <laughs> that's right. And um, just kind of speak to, you know, the current generation of high school and college students um, as, as you're formulating your answer. <laughs> Over the past few years, young people have watched the Supreme Court gut many of the rights that generations before us fought to protect. And at least for me, it feels like I'm facing the consequences of elections and decisions that happened before I was even allowed to vote, which feels disheartening. Despite that, how have you seen young people get involved in the fight against Christian nationalism? And what advice would you give to young people who want to get more involved in this fight? Such a good question. So many thoughts are going through my head. I mean, first of all, I've been so impressed with this rising generation and their rebellion and their willingness to take on Christian nationalism. And I think that activism and the fight that they are getting involved in is, is one of the actual, actually the reasons that we are seeing all of this. And I'll get into that in a second. Um, but in terms of things that you can do, um, I think one arming yourself with the appropriate knowledge about what you are actually up against um, and arguments against it is crucial. Um, that's one of the reasons I wrote my books. Don't buy them, go to the library and get them out. Sorry, Union Square Publishing, pretend you didn't hear that. <laughs> um, I, I, think, I think everybody out there listening to this has a platform of some kind that they can use to speak out against Christian nationalism, and they should be doing that. Um, if you want to get more involved, Americans United um, hire, well, we, we put together these um, cohorts of youth fellows that we train to be activists all around the country and they do this really amazing work 
Um, and I would encourage you to look up Americans United's youth fellowship programs. We also hire, hire legal interns. We have four interns on our communications team, which I run this year. And of course, there are other groups out there doing great work as well, like REAP, like uh, American Atheists, um, ACLU, who are all kind of on the front lines. But And Americans I, I United, that would be AU.org, right? Where, where AU.org. Okay. Yes, sir. Thank you. Um, but I, I do want to talk just a little bit about... Um, about hope, um, because I do detect, you know, there's, there's kind of a, a note in that question of, of frustration. And I think yeah. when, I, when people read American Cruise, you know, I used to tell people when they, <laughs> when they would buy the book, uh, or when they would like, people would contact me on social media, like, hey, Andrew, I bought your book. Um, and I would always respond like, you know, thank you, happy reading. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's the right that's the right response. Because that's Crusade a little bit of a misdirection. <laughs> yeah, it's it's like it's very. And I realized, uh, you know, after the fourth or fifth time I did this with anybody, I'm like, oh, I should stop saying that. Um, but actually, I, I do, I do have hope. I, I and I have a lot of hope, and a lot of it has to do with this generation. And um, I, yeah. I want to explain that because I think it's really important to leave these conversations with with hope. And so, I mean, first, like. One of the important things to ask in any any fight is why, and for mm -hmm. the other side, I want to like why are they seeking religious freedom as a weapon? Why are they turning to Christian nationalism? You know, like like Sauron in the ring, like Voldemort in the Elder Wand, Thanos in the Infinity Stone. I'm trying to find something that connects with this generation. They are seeking <laughs> a weapon of power. Yes, power. Yep. But but why are they so scared? Why? Um, and, and I think a lot of it has to do with this generation uh, because nuns are on the rise, because Americans are leaving religion behind, because we elected our first black president and a black female vice president because of marriage equality, because every day we are closer to racial and gender and LGBTQ equality and because they are so used to seeing a narrow world that reflects their straight, white, conservative Christian patriarchy that, that the existence let alone the equality of anyone else really threatens them. Um, and, and the wellspring of my hope is, is this basic definitional truth. Their power hungry aggression is growing our movement, right? Mm, their, wow. their wins in, in the abortion case, in the coach imposing prayer on other people's children case, in the case of Maine taxpayers funding religious indoctrination, all those happened last term. Um, in, in uh, the 303 creative case that we were just talking about, right? their wins swell our ranks. They're, they're creating True. a feedback loop because of the why, though the whole reason for this crusade in the first place is, is shifting demographics and their fear of those. So white Christian nationalists are working to privilege the chosen few and every legislative and legal victory that they notch alienates more people wakes more people up to the danger and drives more people away from their movement. Their power-hungry aggression is growing our movement. Hey, so, I that's that is a hopeful statement because you know, sometimes it is hard to 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 find hope here, but I think that's really true because I was talking to Aaron earlier today and I was like, "Well, in light of some of these Supreme Court cases, it's kind of open season on yeah. on yeah. queer people and like white yes. Christian white Christians can kind of fire you know women people with disabilities anyone they don't yeah. like. But now that it is open season, we're hearing about it in the news, 
and it makes them it exposes the ugliness of their movement in a way that I do think you know is the backlash to the backlash Right. It is, and and look, their their ideas are wildly unpopular, right? Like, remember the Leonard Leo quote right. that I that I gave you earlier. They they're trying to capture these anti democratic mechanisms because they cannot sell people on their ideas. They have to impose them by force. They, right. They, they are crusading because we are working to meet those unmet promises in the American Declaration of Independence and the U.S. Constitution. Right. The self evident truth that all are equal. That that we the people means all the people. And, right. and previous generations have failed to realize those aspirations. But as we continue to march toward that progress, the Christian nationalists are fighting ever harder against it. And you're, you're right, they're not gonna go gently. They're gonna rage against the dying of their privilege. But, but really in the end, we are going to win because they, they are fighting only for themselves and where they are selfish, we are selfless. They want supremacy, mm. we want equality. And, and I believe that is why in the end we will triumph and it's not because our principle is inherently better than theirs, though it right. most certainly is. <laughs> Let me just be very clear about that. But because, I mean, the math is on our side. We have the numbers, and that's what they are fighting. That is what they are raging against. And you can fight City Hall, but you can't fight math. So I have a lot of hope. I absolutely love all of that. I love every single thing that we talked about. Like, I've learned so much, and, um, I think that this is great, and I I love ending on a on a positive note, um, so folks don't have to wallow in despair at the current situation in our country. But um, Andrew, tell us where, how do we find you? Where do we find you on socials? Um, how do we know what you're up to? Well, Aaron. Thank you for asking. Um, I'm Andrew L. Seidel, S-E-I-D-E-L. On all of the socials, I'm on the TikTok, which I love, uh, Instagram, Ooh. Twitter, Facebook. I don't do Facebook anymore, but I'm there. Um, I've got a website. <laughs> it's sort of like, oh, we have to still be there sometimes. I'm going to yeah. send you a friend request on <laughs> yeah. Facebook right now. Yeah, yeah. I, I have not checked it in months. The hellscape. Um, definitely, okay. definitely do it on TikTok or on Instagram. That's where I'm more active these days. Perfect. Um, I'm, on th- I'm on threads too, even, y'all. Um, okay. Oh, yeah, we got to get on there. I see you. Yeah. We actually yeah. are on there. Reap oh, is on great. There. Oh, we're, we're on, on it. We're on this. There you go. Excellent. But, I mean, also, I would really encourage people to check out Americans United for Separation of Church and State, AU.org, especially if you are, like, really wanting to focus in on this fight and where, how can you learn more. Um, you know, our, our youth fellows are, are really amazing, um, and our interns go on to these great, big, amazing things. Um, it's been really cool to see them develop even in the short time that I've been with AU, so definitely check that out. Oh, yeah, we highlight that. Our whole team went to the Americans United Summit, and yeah. you are a good, like, they are the place to go if you are interested in these issues. Great educational resources, yeah. um, professional opportunities. So definitely check them out. They are on the cutting edge of it all. Thank you. Thank you so much. Well, thank you so much, Andrew. We really loved having you. Yeah, Andrew, this was so great. Thank you so much. It was a lot of fun. It really was. I want to do it again. Thanks for tuning in to On God's Campus, Voices from the Queer Underground. I'm your narrator, Chloe, alongside co-hosts Paul Carlos Southwick and Aaron Green. 
This podcast is a product of the Religious Exemption Accountability Project and is produced by Crystal Cheatham from Our Bible App. Listen next time as On God's Campus examines the lessons history has to teach us about where predominantly white Christian educational institutions and the political machines backing them are taking the country now.